Day Dads. We're glad that you're able to be here with us, those of you who are fathers, and uh, we're grateful for everyone that has come today. But uh, hopefully as you watch that video, you realize the importance, the influence that dad has. And not only just dad, but uh, God's given man uh, a special responsibility in our culture. I know some of you may be here today as uh, single moms or people that are in a situation where dad's just not there. And uh, those are 25 million opportunities that are represented in those stats, men, of opportunities for you to reach out and to, to love those families. And so for you that uh, don't have a father in the home or in that situation, uh, Lord willing, some of the men in our church can be part of filling that gap in your family situation. And I know Father's Day, too, for many can be difficult. Uh, maybe you had a bad dad. Uh, he just wasn't good. He was a bum or loser, whatever uh, phrase you want to think about. And uh, we have a perfect heavenly father that, Lord willing, you'll encounter this morning. And uh, for some of you, it's a difficult day. Maybe you lost dad. Um, I know that I got a text message from my brother this morning. It was a picture of my dad and he and I. And uh, it's just kind of tough, you know, to, dad's not here. And so um, I understand that this can be a difficult day. I want to thank you for being here. In fact, I want to welcome all of our guests. Guests, if you're here, I want to thank you for being here and welcome. So there's one thing we ask you to do this morning, if you wouldn't mind. We've got a little card we put in our worship program. We call it our connection card. If you fill that out and take it out at the first time guest kiosk, we've got a gift that we want to bless you with today and just tell you that we love you. And then we also give a gift to someone else um, as a result of you turning that card in. So if you want to bless someone else today, please fill that card out and turn it in. You can also use that card for prayer requests. If you trust Jesus as your Savior today, if you're interested in baptism, if you'd like to meet with a pastor, talk with a pastor, uh, you can use that card for those things as well. But today, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in a series we've been doing from the book of Acts called Movement. And what we've been talking about is this movement of God called the church. That's God's plan for reaching the world for Jesus Christ, believe it or not. It's his plan A. There is no plan B. That's you, that's me. And uh, we've been going through verse by verse and book by or section by section through this book called the book of Acts. And uh, God worked all this out. I didn't realize this when we were planning this series that we come to the passage that we're coming to today. We're going to talk about real manhood. And we didn't orchestrate this, that because we came to this passage, you know, that it would land on Father's Day. Literally a couple weeks ago, I was like, well, what's the passage on Father's Day? I looked at it, I was like, I can't believe that. God, I love when you, when you do that. And so he's brought us to this passage of Scripture. We're going to talk about today real manhood. Now, let me say this, ladies. A lot of the principles we're going to talk about still apply to your life. But because today's Father's Day, we're going to slant the applications, and as we look at this passage, uh, what it really means to us towards our men, because we need to be challenged as men. So we're going to open the Scriptures together and do that in just a moment. Let me pray for us. And then we'll open up to Acts chapter 9. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us here trying to figure life out, that you've spoken directly into our lives, directly into these moments today. And there are hundreds of situations and maybe thousands of situations that, that we face. And we're looking to your word. We want some answers. We want you to speak. We want you to speak into our, our relationships, into our finances, into our health, into all kinds of different things right now. Will you speak the word you desire for us at this moment? And will you give a... Will you uh, just give us exactly what we need, encouragement or challenge or, or whatever it is, Father? Open our hearts and our ears to you. Remove the distractions that will be in our mind. Um, block the enemy from this place. And God, be our Father. So many of us, we need a Father. You are the perfect Father with perfect love and perfect guidance and perfect grace. God, we need that. We need you. And we want to make you known to this world. Please, sh please challenge us and show us how to do that this morning. God, open us. Make us into the people that you desire for us to be. Save some if there are any that need to come into the kingdom. And Father, for those that are believers, do what you need to do in us today to make us more like your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you watch much TV or not. My wife and I have recently found a show that we've started to enjoy. It's a new show to us. It's not a new show, but it's a new show to us. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Duck Dynasty. All right, a couple of you have heard of that show. 
If you haven't heard of that show, maybe you've seen the guys. They've got this branding campaign. It's Crazy Beards. If you grew up in the 80s or 90s, it's ZZ Tops with camouflage. And so they've got these huge beards. They come down to like their sternum. And it's these guys that live in West Monroe, Louisiana. And they've become very rich selling duck calls. They own a business called Duck Commander. And they will work in the corporate world and do all that. They'll show family situations, corporate world situations. But where they really want to be is out in the woods. One of my favorite parts of the show is at the very end. At the very end of the show, the, the dad who kind of founded the business and started everything and gives words of wisdom throughout the show, is he prays for the meal. And if you've ever watched the show before, you'll see that they kind of do a camera swoop through the table. I want you to notice the next time you watch the show that oftentimes what you see on that table you actually saw earlier in the show, only it was alive when you saw it earlier in the show. And these guys, I think they kill every meal they eat. In fact, they interviewed one of the brothers one time. His name is Jace. And he said, I don't like eating meat from the grocery store. I just don't know if I can trust it. (laughs) He calls the woods. is God's grocery store. That's where you go and and you get your meal. It doesn't matter if it's a frog, if it's a squirrel, if it's a deer, if it's a duck. They go out and they they hunt this wild game and they kill this stuff. And they've got all these endearing characters. Probably my favorite is Uncle Cy. For those of you who've seen the show. Hey, Jack! You know, he's gone there telling you all this stuff and can't spell squirrel without S-I and he's got all this stuff. He says he's kind of the, the pithy little things there. And, and you watch these guys, they're these, these manly men, these big beards and they're out hunting and doing all this stuff. And, and when my wife first turned it on, let me be candid with you, I thought, I'm not going to like this show. As soon as it came on, I was thinking, this is, is going to last for about five minutes at our house. And Sunday evening, you know, we pop this thing on, we start watching and I got hooked into it. Now let me tell you why I didn't think I'd like it. I'm what they would call a yuppie. Okay? They are what they refer to themselves as rednecks. And so they're rednecks. And it's not yuppie, by the way. It's yuppie. I'm a yuppie. And because here's why. I live in the suburbs. I intentionally shave my face every day. That's crazy thought I, uh, to them. And, here, and I think about their meals. So they kill everything they eat. The closest that many of us, guys, you can identify with this. You can laugh at me all you want. Some of you are with me. To hunting down your food is on the value menu when you're trying to decide which one's the best deal. One, three, I'm, I'm going with three, three's cheaper. You know, that's the, that's the closest you come to hunting your meal. And if that's the picture of manhood, then you've got to ask yourself the question, can I be a man then? Like, if I, if I don't have the beard and I don't hunt down the game, then, then can I be a real man? If you think about it, we've been given a lot of images of manhood. In fact, I was reading uh, an article by a guy named Eric Garland this week. Eric Garland's not a believer, not a follower of Jesus Christ, to my knowledge. But he tracks social trends, meta trends that are happening in society that, that give us indications of where we're headed and, and kind of how these things go. And I'll show you throughout history what's happened. He gave images of manhood in one of his blogs. And what he does is he starts off with the original American image of manhood. It was a rebel soldier back, you know, the George Washington days. A man who represented a warrior, but at the same time a gentleman who knew chivalry and how to be a gentleman to a lady, but also integrity and kindness and honesty. And then the next image that he gave was a, a farmer. And there was a farmer that was a muscular guy who could run the plow, live off the land, had a horse and a plow, maybe a couple sons, had some ingenuity and knew how to make things happen. And as time went by, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the economy changes, and the landscape of the world changes, it was a businessman, a corporate CEO. He used Andrew Carnegie as his example, a guy who could go into any boardroom situation and come out with the outcome that he wanted, you know, maneuver or manipulate uh, the situations to end up being where he wanted them to be for a good result for himself. And that was our next picture. And then, then he gave another picture of Ward Cleaver. And maybe you remember him. For those of you who remember the TV show, Leave it to Beaver, many of you have never seen that TV show before. Uh, but it happened back in the 50s, and the image was of a guy who worked an upper-middle-class job, provided for his family, and always had things safely and comfortably under control. A family man, a leader in the home. And then what Garland does in his blog is he goes on to demonstrate the images of manhood that we have today. 
and he uses television commercials. I'm going to play one for you this morning, and then you can decide what you think of the images that were given today. So you see the commercial there, and what we have is a guy who basically has no options but one. Man's last stand. Buy a Dodge Charger. You get a toy. You get no other decisions. You're basically emasculated, castrated man who gets no decisions in life. Your man card's been taken away from you. In fact, and you can start thinking of other commercials, by the way. Ones where they show 40-year-old men playing video games, and that's why they can't engage in real life. Or you can see adult cartoons with Homer Simpson. Or you could watch sitcoms where the guy's always the doofus who causes the problems, never solves them. The images that we get of man are pretty pathetic. You've got one here. You've got one shot. You can buy this car that goes vroom, vroom. Buy a toy. And you've got to drive under the speed limit, but you can drive it on your way to work. The mind-sucking job that you have where you have no say and you get to listen and do what you're told. Those are the images that we're given of manhood today. They're obviously pathetic. They're obviously not the best images of manhood, but let me ask you this question. What if all of the images of manhood that we've ever been given as American men have been wrong? What if the answer to our manhood problem in our culture is not to go back to the George Washington days? And it's not to go to Ward Cleaver or anybody in between or the corporate CEO or any of those things, but we've always been given a false vision of manhood. It's clear that today we're given a false vision of manhood. What if every vision of manhood we've been given has been a false vision of manhood? How could we ever, ever attain it if we can't even see it? We don't even know what the example is. And today that's what we're going to talk about is a real vision of manhood. And when I talk about real manhood today, what I'm talking about is being the kind of man that God intended from the beginning and the kind of man that God intends for you to be today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, and I invite you to turn there with me. We'll put verses up on the screen, but it's really best if you bring a copy so you can see what's going on, or when I'm making comments about it, you can look and say, is that really what this passage says? And so it's best for you to have a copy. If you have an iPhone, you can download version real quick even while we're talking. But in Acts chapter 9, I'll start reading in verse 1 here in a moment, we're going to look at a guy who's probably the most influential person in human history next to Jesus Christ. If not, at least in Christianity, next to Jesus, the most influential man. He's called Saul in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at here today. This is a story we call his conversion story. And what's happened here is he's an incredibly successful guy. He's got all kinds of accomplishments and all of the opinions of his family, of his dad, of his friends, of everybody else, is that he's a success and God tells him, you are an utter failure. And it's in that moment that we get these images, these principles of what a real man looks like. And so I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 9 right now, and we'll see how far we go through chapter 9 today. It says, Meanwhile, and we'll talk about what that's connected back to in chapter 8 in a moment. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest. That was the most influential man in the Jewish world at that time, Caiaphas. And verse 2 says, and asked him for letters, some authority, some letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus. That'd be about a week journey away, about 140 miles walking by foot to go to Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem to bring them back, extradite them, bring them back so that then they can go on trial and then hopefully they can be executed. It says, as he neared Damascus, verse 3, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, verse 4. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. So other people experienced this. This is a real event. This is not just a vision. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could not see. He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. 
So here you've got this guy who's a success in everything that he does. He's uh, able to speak multiple languages. He's accomplished in his career. He's accomplished in his religion. He's part of an elite religious group. He's gone to the best schools. His dad thinks he's done a great job. All of his friends think his uh, amazing opinion. You even see the very fact that the most powerful man in the Jewish world gives him these letters, shows they think highly of this guy. And God says, you're a failure. Can you imagine to be a total success at work and a failure at home? Some of us can. Can you imagine being a total success in the eyes of everyone around you, but God saying, you're wasting your life? Some of us can. And it's in that moment that we see that, that God gives us the opportunity to then look at, what does a real man do? And you know what a real man does? A real man admits his failure. A real man is willing to have the courage to admit his failure. Now let's be honest, guys. And, and we can kind of joke about this a little bit, but none of us like to admit failure. Male or female, but guys, we're kind of notorious for not wanting to admit failure. I think about the last time that you bought something that on the box it said assembly required. I don't care what the product was, a TV entertainment center, a bookshelf, a toy for the kid, it said assembly required. And then you take it out in the garage or some manly spot and you put it all together. You got their generic Allen wrench, right? That doesn't really work to put the thing together. But, and you take it out and there's like a man rule. You can't really read the directions. You can look at the pictures, but you can't really read the directions. And so you kind of put it together with some ingenuity you have and it actually looks like it's supposed to look. And your wife comes in and she says, that looks great, honey. And you're like, yeah, thanks. You feel pretty good about it. And then you look over and she says, what are all these extra parts? What happened? Some guy from China must have put too much stuff in the box. I mean, surely you didn't put it together wrong, right? I mean, I, surely I didn't put it together wrong. Or, or let's imagine this situation. Imagine you're going on a road trip and we won't use the word lost because that's another man rule, right? We don't use that word lost. You didn't end up where you thought you were going to end up. What happened? You got bad directions, right? You didn't get lost. You just received from someone else bad directions. Or you make an investment with some money and it loses money. You didn't make a bad investment. Somebody gave you bad advice. Plug in any scenario and it works out where it's clear that you failed at the end. And what happened? They didn't work out the way that I thought it was going to work out. We hate to acknowledge our failures. In fact, this goes back to the beginning. We've got a lot, of, a lot of historicity with this, by the way. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And you see the first man. His name was Adam. What happens with Adam is that he's put in charge of creation. Talk about a job. He's the CEO of everything that's happening. And he gets to name all the animals. He's doing a great job. He's given a spouse. His spouse's name is Eve. They live in perfect relationship. Men, can you fathom having a relationship where you never fought? Perfect relationship. Perfect situation, perfect harmony with God, with all of creation, with everything. And he's given one rule, don't eat of this tree. Don't eat of this one tree. The man and woman both eat of the tree. The woman, in fact, takes the fruit first. Then God comes looking for, and this is important, not them, him. Because the man's responsible. Because the man's been given the position of leadership. And so while she took the fruit, God comes and he asks Adam a question. Did you eat any fruit from this tree? God knew the answer. And look at what Adam responds with. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So it was like her fault or you could even imply, God, it's your fault. You gave me the woman. If you hadn't given me this woman, then I would have never eaten the fruit and so then ultimately it's your fault or at least it's her fault but I did eat it. The results are clear. He didn't want to admit his failure. He was passive in the situation that he allowed his wife to take the fruit when he was the one that was given the command and he was standing right there when it took place. And he rejected the opportunity to accept responsibility for what took place. And that's natural for us men. Those are the images of manhood have been given since the beginning of time. 
So can you imagine how hard it was for a guy like Saul? A guy who's named after a king, by the way. The first king of Israel. A guy who's accomplished in everything that he does. In fact, he talks about it. In Philippians chapter 3, he says that if anyone else thinks he has reasonable confidence of flesh, I have more. And what's just happened in that passage is he's listed his accomplishments. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Jew of the Jews. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Circumcised on the eighth day. That was the right day to be circumcised on. Everything about my pedigree is correct. He's a Roman citizen from his father's side. He's also fully Jewish, which was the right race to be because it was following the true God. Not only that, if you look at him historically, you end up finding some information. You just search through the scriptures and it says things, for instance, that he was mentored by not one of the best teachers of that time, the teacher, the rabbi to be taught by. His name is Gamaliel. If you were to summarize Saul's life, he not only did that, he also had incredible accomplishments. He had all the training, all the pedigree, all the genealogy, and he says this in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1, he was surpassing everybody that was his peers and his accomplishments. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. So if you're going to put that into like modern terms, it would be like saying this. He graduated from whatever you think is the best school. I think he has an MBA from Harvard. And he was mentored. He was mentored by like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. You pick the guy. And he came from a royal lineage and his family from Europe, but his dad was actually an American citizen. And so he was here. And as a result of all the travel he did when he was young, he also speaks French, German, Spanish, a little bit of Mandarin on the side, so he can do business, international business, whoever he wants. In fact, he was so accomplished in his career that he could retire by the time he was 30, but chooses to continue to work because he wants to leave a legacy. And so now he gets to work just on his passion. And for Saul, his passion was eliminate Christianity from the earth. He believed they were liars. He believed that when Jesus died and he went into the tomb, he never came out, that Jesus was dead. So these heretics were damaging his religion, Judaism, and he believed he was doing God a favor by trying to eliminate these Christians, eradicate the Christians from the earth. And so that's why when you go to our text and it says, meanwhile, Saul was still. It's actually referring back to that adverb still is taking us back to Acts chapter 8 at the very beginning. And what had happened was Stephen, who was the first martyr of Christianity, the first person to be murdered for their faith, he's just died and he's just witnessed Stephen say, God, don't hold this against them. Which is a little, he's living his life like Jesus. Jesus on the cross, remember, he says, Father, forgive them. Speaking about all of us. I don't know what they're doing. They don't know they're killing the Son of God. They know their sin. They know they're murdering me. They don't realize who I am. Forgive them. Some people like to romanticize that passage a little bit and try and get in Saul's mind and say that that's one of the things that played into his conversion. We don't see that in Acts chapter 9. In fact, the story here in Acts 9 is also found in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26. And Luke is the author of the book of Acts and Luke doesn't record that anywhere. And when Saul records his own story, uh, Paul, later he's called, in Philippians and in Galatians and we see it in Romans and different places, pieces throughout the scripture, he doesn't mention that. What Luke does tell us about that situation, that incredible testimony that Stephen laid out, was that it really ticked Saul off. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, it says that then Saul goes on and he says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Some of your translations say the word ravage. The Greek term has the idea of it's sadistic cruelty towards Christians. And it says he was going from house to house. He dragged off men and women. He put them in prison so that then they could be convicted of their Christianity and be executed. And the word for destroy or ravage, it's a word that's oftentimes used as a wild boar tearing its prey to pieces. That was the passion. The all-consuming passion of his life was to eliminate Christians from the world. And it says here that meanwhile, Saul's going about to do this, and he goes and it says in verse 2 that he goes to this guy, the high priest, and he gets these letters, which shows how high these guys thought of him. And it says in verse 3, 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now I told you, the story is also recorded in Acts chapter 22 and 26. You can read that on your own. And, and if you read all three of the stories, they're not all three exactly the same. They're in different settings for different situations, and so different details are shared. Acts chapter 26 tells us what time of day it is, which I think is really interesting when you consider this light shining so brightly that it knocks him down. Because it was noon. Now try and imagine that. If it was midnight, out in the desert, on a road, there's no cities around, no street lights, you can imagine how dark it would be. Any light would seem like a bright light. We're talking about the Middle East and the middle of the day. Think about how, how bright that would be. And then we've got a light here that outshines the sun that is so bright that knocks Saul to the ground. We're talking about the glory of God breaking through creation. It knocks him to the ground, and then look at what happens. As he's on the ground, then a voice speaks to him. Verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice. So it's not just what he sees, but what he hears. And the voice says to him, Saul, Saul. You really want to get someone's attention. Repeat their name. You can say their middle name if they're in trouble, right? Scott, Michael. If you really want to get someone's attention, say, Saul, Saul. If I want to get my daughter's attention, Ella, Ella. If I'm intense. Or, you know, for my wife, I'm intimate. Shanna, Shan, Shan. You see it through the scriptures? Abraham's about to sacrifice his son Isaac. In Genesis chapter 22, he's got the knife up in the air, and God says, Abraham, Abraham. Or in Exodus, when Moses gets called to be a leader of a nation, Moses, Moses from a burning bush. In the New Testament, you see Jesus. He's trying to reprioritize the life of a woman named Martha. He says, Martha, Martha. Here you've got Saul, Saul. And notice the question. Why? Not what are you doing? How are you doing it? Where are you going? Why do you persecute me? Why is this your life passion? Why is this the thing you do? Why is this the objective of your life? And can you imagine being asked that question if Jesus were to stop you today and were to ask you the question, why? That's a penetrating question. Ask you what you do. Oh, I work at GSK or I do this or I, I be a... That's you where you're going. Well, it's Father's Day. We're going to go have lunch. All that stuff's kind of surface level, but a why question gets to the heart. Why do you do the things you do? And so think about what is your life objective? Saul's passion was to eliminate Christianity from the earth. What's your passion? And maybe it's sharing the gospel. Maybe it's making disciples. Maybe it's serving in the nursery. Maybe it's seeing the next generation be this way. Maybe it's all these positive things. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's a secret sin you hope we wouldn't talk about today. Maybe it has to do with lust, or maybe it has to do with something else, and maybe it has anger, or maybe it's just you steal, stole something, and so you're always going after stuff. Why, why are you greedy? Maybe it's to get your name out there. Maybe it's to be popular. Perhaps it's to climb the ladder. Perhaps, and I know adult men, this is true, it's to please Dad. And you live your life. You can't admit failure because Dad was a perfectionist, and so you've got to live your life trying to always do the right thing. For some people, your greatest fear is failure. And so your why is, why you can never admit failure, because then your greatest fear would become reality. For some people, that's just pride. Why, why do you do what you do? Because it can be incredibly good things. But when you ask that why question, if it's not for Jesus, you know what he says in the scriptures? If you're not for me, you're against me. So why do you? Why do you serve orphans? Why do you? And we can say all that stuff, right? We don't even have to mention all the wicked stuff. Because you can put the good stuff out there and have wicked motivation, self-motivation, selfish ambition, lust, greed, all kinds of stuff that drives good-looking things. Why? 
why do you persecute me, Saul? We can read this story and, and think to ourselves, too, this is normal. Like This kind of stuff happens. It's in the Bible. Lights shining around people, angels appearing, like, you know, people getting healed, walking on water. Uh, this isn't normal. It's not normal then either. It's never happened in Saul's life before. In the book of Acts, we've seen thousands of people come to Christ. This is the first time we've seen it happen like this. So you can imagine Saul's slightly confused. This light shines around him. He falls to the ground, and then he hears this voice talk to him, and he says this, Who are you, Lord? There's a voice coming from heaven, Saul asked. Imagine what it was like to hear this response. I am Jesus. You, are be- you believe beyond what you can possibly believe that when Jesus died, he stayed in the tomb, and you hear, I am Jesus. You know what you're thinking? Uh-oh. That's <laughs> not good. If you're Saul, all of a sudden, everything in your life and everything about your life has all of a sudden taken a turn. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I know what you're doing, and I know how you're doing it. I'm asking you why you're doing it. In this very moment, Saul is confronted with his failure. What's he going to do? Isn't that the real question? What are you going to do? And what do you do when you're confronted in your failure? What if you start to ask that why question and you don't like what you see, but everybody else likes what they see? What are you going to do? What are you going to do if you know the answer to the why question is not pleasing to God? What are you going to do? Because you might be a success before everybody else, but if God says you're wasting your life, you're fighting against me, you're doing your own thing, what are you going to do? Because we all fail. I mean, just as candid as we can be, the scripture says we all like sheep have gone astray. Uh, we're all sinners. That means we're at our core. We are sinners. Ever since Adam, every one of us has sinned. That means given the choice, we choose to rebel against God. We choose to not meet his standards. We choose to do our own thing for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all fail. That's general. We're pretty comfortable with that. Nobody's perfect. We can handle that language. Let's talk about specific failures. You fail at work, you fail with your kids, you fail with your wife, you fail in the business, you fail with budgeting, you fail with everything. You fail in every way in some capacities. I do too. Now let me tell you this, this is kind of fun, guys. Do you know there was a time, and my wife's not in here so I can say whatever I want, right? Um, There was a time, my wife and I dated for five years before we got married. This July 1st will be our 13th year anniversary. We've been together for 18 years, but for about the first year of our being together, she didn't think I made a mistake. Can you believe that? That is awesome. I can't believe, I know me, and I can't believe she thought that. She thought because he loves Jesus and he reads his Bible, he must be right. Like, he just must know stuff. And, and there are times now, if I'm real candid with you, that we're having conversations where they're intense conversations, we'll say. And she doesn't always see things the way that I see things. And I wish we could go back to that year. <laughs> but if you think about trying to live that way for 18 years, think about the pressure that is. You can never make a mistake. Let me tell you something. None of you and I can't handle that pressure. And we weren't meant to because we're all failures. In fact, that's what a sinner is, an admitted failure. We are all failures and we fail. And now when I fail, she's seen me fail at home. She's seen me fail with the kids. She's seen me fail in leading her. She's seen me fail. Uh, Every way that you can think of, I've failed. And and you know how humbling that is when that happens? I mean, you fail like a six, seven-year-old and three-year-old and one-year-old. You mess up with one of the kids. You don't parent them correctly. And you can say, you know, I'm sorry I lost my temper or whatever. Do you ever think about going to why? Let me tell you, l- listen, honey, the reason why I'm har- I was harder on you than I was on her in this situation really had to do with me. It didn't have anything to do with you. Well, that's not easy to admit it and then to really deal with it. Or, or, or think about here at the church. Some of you see me admit failure. I've said up in front of you, apologize for stupid stuff I've said the week before, before as a church. If you've been here long enough, you've seen that. I've failed at work. Um, I told a couple of our leaders recently, we were doing the, the 10X campaign back in the fall. 
I don't think it was wrong that we did the tennis campaign, but I said one of the, I led poorly in some of it. I pushed too hard. We went too fast in some of the stuff. And I just apologized. I said, listen, that was wrong. It was wrong of me. I shouldn't have done that. See it at home. See it at work. See it with my wife. See it in all kinds of different places. And you do too. What are you going to do when you see it? You see, what you've got to realize is that your failure is actually a catalyst for God's grace in your life to then put his glory on display. It's what launches. It speeds up the problem. When you come to grips with your failure, it then causes you, it forces you, either got to cover it up and pretend like it's not real, or you've got to go to someone that can fix it. The only one that can fix it is Jesus Christ, so you've got to go to his grace, which then puts God's glory on display. That's what Paul realized. I don't know how much failure you have in your life, and you might be thinking of some of the dumb stuff that you've done right now, but let me read you this passage from 1 Timothy by the Apostle Paul, which is Saul from this passage of Scripture. It says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and admitted failure, of whom I'm the worst. Now listen, time out. I don't know what you think you've done. You're not the worst. Paul has that title. Okay, that's already wrapped up. It's in the Bible. You might be number two. You're not number one. He's the worst. And listen to what he says about it in verse 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, let me emphasize that, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life, that everyone could have eternal life. You haven't failed too much. Nobody has failed too much for Jesus Christ to forgive you. You can't out-sin the cross is what he's saying. He's the worst. That's the example. And look at what happens when he gets saved, when he comes to grace, when he realizes his failure, admits his failure, deals with his failure. God's glory is put on display. That's why real manhood admits failure. And that's what we see Saul do in this passage of Scripture. What happens next, and I left off in verse 5, so I'll pick up in verse 6, is Jesus says to him, now get up, go into the city, you'll be told what you must do. There's some time before that happens. It says the man traveling with Saul stood up, speechless, and they heard the sound, they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. Can you imagine that? You know, if a bright light comes on, you naturally close your eyes. Can you imagine opening your eyes, and you, it's the same as if they're still closed. You can see nothing. So imagine how helpless he felt. And then it says, they led him by the hand. Here's the man with all the accomplishments, all the success. He's ravaging the church. He's coming in on a rampage. And instead, God has him let in like a little child. God opposes the proud. He's being led into Damascus by his hand. And it says in verse 9, for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. What Luke, the author of Acts, is describing here when he says that he did not eat or drink anything for three days is a fast. It was the most intense kind of fast. It was a fast that was oftentimes used in a time of repentance. And what was happening here was that Saul was spending three days repenting. That's not, God, I'm sorry that I didn't open the door for that old lady on the way out of church today. I'm just throwing one up there. Three days? Why did it take three days? Was it because he had such a long list? He does say he was the worst sinner ever. Maybe he just has a really long list. It takes three whole days. I don't think so. Because real repentance is not just a confession, not just, a, not just saying that it's true, not just, hey, I, I messed up on this. It's a dealing with what's happening. It's stopping what's happening. So in order to stop what's happening, you know what he's got to do? He's got to go back to that question, why? Why? Why are you persecuting me? Why was I doing that? What is it in my heart? Why was I doing that thing? And do you know what? That's hard work, and most men are too cowardly to do that kind of work. We'd rather deal with the surface level. I do go to work, I work the job, I pay the bills, I even got my family to church. What's wrong? I do all the right stuff. Why? Why do you feel the need to do all the right stuff? 
Why? What's happening in your heart? Where does that come from? And the reason why we don't want to do that is because then what happens is we come face to face with ourselves, we don't like what we see, and we can't fix it. And so what we choose to do is choose to live on the surface level. We do it with other people. This is an analogy. You can think about it. Think about all the people that you know. You don't really know them. You don't know what makes them tick. You don't know why they do the things they do. You might know their name. You might know their face. You might even know intimate facts about their life, but you don't really know them. Just think about how many times I was reflecting on this this week. How many times do you see, you're watching the news, somebody does some horrible crime, and they do these interviews. The interviews are so predictable. You're going to go to the neighbor, and you're going to ask them, what were they like? Oh, they were such a nice guy. In other words, you didn't know them. They just had that guy in Cleveland. They had women locked in his basement for years. His own brother said they didn't know. And they visited the house. Think about surface level. Here's the deal. Many of us live that way with ourselves. There's a Puritan named Thomas Watson. He did not know the story about Cleveland. He did not watch any of the news interviews we've seen, but he knew people. And he said this, Is it not strange that two should live together and eat and drink together yet not know each other? Some people live like that in their marriage. Such is the case of a sinner. His body and soul live together, work together, yet he's unacquainted with himself. He knows not his own heart, nor what a hell he carries about him. Uh, the wickedness that lives with inside him. See, man, really admitting this stuff means you get real about it, you get honest about it, and you look. Not just at why is it that you look at these images on a computer screen? Why is it that you lie about your reputation at work? Why is it that you want other people's opinions? Whether it's dads, your wife, the neighbors, whoever it is. Why? Why? And you come to grips with stuff that goes far deeper. Need for acceptance. Desire to be loved. Anger. Lust. Pride. Greed. All that stuff that's deep. And you don't like what you see, and you can't fix it. So now what are you going to do? You've got to come up with something else to fix it. And what many of us do is we come up with false saviors. And whether that's sports or a hobby or exercise or accomplishments or getting the you know, attaboys, pats on the back, but they never really satisfy, do they? Because they never deal with this stuff. There's only one Savior that can actually deal with this stuff. It was the man Christ Jesus who came to deal with this very stuff. See, what happened was Jesus Christ lived the life that no man ever could or ever did but should have. It was a perfect life. It was exactly the life that God intended for him to live. And he lived that life on mission. You know what the mission was? To seek and save that which was lost, you and me. He was pursuing the very design, the very plan that God had for his life. And you know what he did? He accepted responsibility, the exact opposite of what Adam does. He's passive he doesn't accept responsibility. Jesus Christ is the image of manhood. It's not Saul. Even though we're looking at Saul, this passage of Scripture, Jesus is the star of the story. And Jesus is the one who stops him on the street. Jesus is the one who confronts him with who he is. And what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? And that's what every man has to decide. And a real man follows the Savior of all mankind, Jesus Christ. You admit your failure, and it's true whether you want to admit it or not, the failure is a reality. What are you going to do with it, and will you truly deal with it? There's only one way to really deal with it, and it's Jesus Christ. He died for your sins, for my sins. And it's not just, all right, I'll take that. I believe that to be true. So are you going to do real work with him, real heart work, where you encounter him and meet him in those dark places that you don't like to see? And then that's where grace comes through, and the glory of God's put on display, and you become a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. That's what happens with Saul. You see what happens here is he spends these three days in fasting and then we get more commentary, commentary from Luke in verse 10. We meet this guy named Ananias. It says in Damascus, there's a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Sounds very willing to obey. Then the Lord gives him his instructions. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, or from Tarsus named Saul. Uh, what? You know, imagine as he's hearing that. 
For he's praying, and in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias. Hint. (laughs) Seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call upon your name. Let me just remind you of this. When you're praying, you're never updating God. He already knows. Verse 15. But the Lord said, go. It's a familiar command, isn't it? Abraham, us, Ananias. Go. This man is my chosen instrument. I've selected him, and he's also selected each one of us. In fact, everybody has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. He's adopted you into his family. You're his son, you're his daughter, and he's got good works for you to do. He's got a plan for you to do. And he's talking about what the good works are here for Saul. He says, to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And if you've read some of the rest of the Bible, you know that's exactly what he does. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. And if you read about Saul, you know this guy suffered more than anybody that most of us ever read about or meet or anything like that. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, you can read about it until he writes more books in the New Testament than anybody else. He wrote this letter to this church and we turned it into a book called 2 Corinthians and in it, he talks about all the different suffering he goes through. He says that he was flogged. He says that not only was he flogged, he says five times he received a beating from the, the Jews, the 40 lashes minus one. He was stoned one time. He was shipwrecked, abandoned, in danger from bandits, in danger in the river, in danger at sea, in danger in all kinds of different situations. He talks about emotional stress, talks about physical stress, talks about all the pain, imprisonments, all this stuff. And you read that whole thing. You know what it reads like in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 if you read it on your own? You ever have grandpa tell you a story about what it was like to go to school? He used to walk to school uphill both ways in the snow, barefoot, on glass. You ever ask yourself this question? Why? Why'd you do that, Grandpa? Why didn't you just go there and get the book? Stop going back. That sounds like a bad situation. He reads Saul's situation, and he's got you know shipwrecked and beaten, and what are you doing, man? Why? You know why Saul experiences all that? He experiences all those things as he lives his life like Jesus Christ. Jesus lived his life. They killed him. You know how he lived his life? Opposite of most of us, he lived his life for the sake of others. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth to check it out and see what it was like down here. I wonder if they've got better food, better music. What's the temperature? He was in perfect place. He came here for you and for me. You know what he did? He accepted your sin, your responsibility for your sin. He had none. And so he takes responsibility. He leads courageously and he pursues the greater reward. That's the definition of manhood. That's real manhood. You want a vision for manhood? It's Jesus Christ. And what does he do? Unlike Adam, he accepts responsibility. He rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and pursues the greater reward. I first heard that definition of manhood and men's fraternity, a ministry we did a couple years ago here at Southbridge. We're going to do another uh, similar type men's ministry that's going to, or men's group that's going to start in the fall. Dave Lenhart, one of our elders, is going to lead it. Different content, different packaging of it, uh, but same vision of manhood. A man is someone who actually takes responsibility because you've been given incredible influence, incredible responsibility, men. So we saw from the video at the beginning, not the Dodge Charger one. You accept the responsibility of that and pursue the reward that God has for you. You know what the reward God has for you? It's Jesus Christ himself. Here's the problem, for being real candid today, is most of us don't want that. We don't really want Jesus. 
I want to be a good dad. I want to take kids to church. I want to be whatever kind of man you're expected to be. But really, if we ask why type questions, we don't, we don't want Jesus. I remember I was teaching about a year ago at a, a men's thing that we had for our church, and there was a, a room full of guys. And I shared some stuff at the beginning about a relationship with God and talking about God and um, being a man and some of those types of things. And one of the men in the room asked a question that day. It's probably the best question that I've been asked in six years of being here. He just raised his hand and he said, why am I not motivated to read the Bible? Why am I not motivated to be with Jesus? And he went on to say, I'll watch a Carolina Panthers football game. I'll spend four hours doing that. No problem. But I don't want to spend 15 minutes opening the Bible. Why? Essentially, he said, I don't want to. Why is that, man? I think he gave great insight when he talked about wanting to watch a Panthers football game. Why do we want to do that? Because we care about us. We want our satisfaction. Do you ever notice in the scripture, is it interesting to you, that you're commanded to love other people, you're commanded to love God, you're commanded to do all kinds of things that have to do with love? You're never commanded to love yourself. But the scripture addresses it. It assumes that it's true because we all love us. The second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Because we all love ourselves. We feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we groom ourselves, unless we're like out in West Monroe, whatever. We do all kinds of stuff for ourselves. We care about us. When we itch, we scratch, we do all that stuff. Here's an earth-shattering truth that's very simple. God loves you more than you love you. Jesus Christ will go to greater extremes for your satisfaction than you will. He died so that you could have life and have it abundantly. He gave his life. Sometimes you won't get up to get the remote. He died for you. He loves you. Beyond what you love you. Do you know the work that he's wanting to do in you is a transformation of your desires. It's the very thing he does with Saul here. He goes from being a guy that wants to kill Christians and go back to verse 15. To a guy who's going to tell everybody how to become one. He goes from the persecutor to the persecuted. From the persecutor to the preacher. But notice who he's preaching to. I think it's really interesting, especially the order that's considered here in verse 15. It says, he's going to be my chosen instrument to carry my message, to carry my name before the Gentiles. Remember who we're talking about here. Saul is a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Jew of the Jews, circumcising the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin. Let me tell you something about Jews. They hate Gentiles. There was a prayer they used to pray. Jews were oftentimes known to pray. And it was, God at the resurrection, don't remember. (laughs) Yeah, like that's going to happen. Don't remember the Gentiles. How much do you have to hate somebody to want them to go to hell? They hate Gentiles. And Saul's going to be transformed into a man who loves Gentiles. He's going to take the best news in the world to the Gentiles and to their kings. And also to Israel, his people, who he'd give his very salvation, he'd give up his own salvation and go to hell so that they could have a relationship with Christ. What God does is he transforms his desires. In fact, he talks about it in Philippians chapter 3, that passage where he lists off his resume, and if anybody has reason to boast in the flesh, I have more. You know what he says? He says, listen, all that stuff I used to consider a gain, I now consider it a loss. It's accounting terminology. Everything that was in the profit column shifted over to the loss column. It's actually detrimental to me because I was doing it in my own flesh. Because I was doing it for my own personal gain, my own selfish ambition for other people's approval. And He says, what is more? I consider everything a loss, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. It's all garbage. Then verse 10. It says, I want. I want. That's a desire word. I want to know Christ. That word for know there is an experiential no. It's not a, if you just hear enough sermons about it, then you'll know. If you just read the right verses, then you know. If you get the right book, then you get it. No, it's, 
You've got to experience it for yourself. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, a power over physical, a power over spiritual, both soul and body. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. If I have to suffer in order to know him more and to somehow become like him in his death, then I'll do whatever suffering I'm going to do because that's how desperately and passionately I want to know Christ. It transformed his desires. But that doesn't happen by just learning information. You have to experience it. So guys, it's not that you just attend enough things, go to the men's rally, if there was just another promise keepers, if we could just... No, you have to be alone with Christ and go to those dark places and realize you can't fix it and then run to the Savior who can, who then puts his glory on display through your life because of his grace. You admit your failure, you follow the Savior of all mankind, Jesus Christ. And it only happens through you experiencing it. It's like this, uh, today's Father's Day. And my wife said to me that I can have anything that she makes uh, for lunch today. Like she makes, and she makes some great food. I mean, Paula Dean, she's got nothing on, on a Shanna, okay? I'm telling you what. She can cook. So it hasn't always been that way. Uh, we tell uh, young couples when we do premarital counseling how Shanna's cooking used to be. Because <laughs> we'll have them over for meals and whatnot. And it used to be bad, okay? <laughs> she's teaching them bridge kids right now. But it was bad food. And one time, and with the story that we oftentimes share with these couples is uh, one time she bought three steaks from the grocery store for three whole dollars. <laughs> this is fine meat, obviously, we're starting off with. She brings it home, she cooks it up in a pan, and I'm telling you, I couldn't cut that steak with a steak knife. So you can imagine gnawing and choking that baby down. And here's the surprise good news during the meal, because all men are supposed to like steak. Honey, I made two for you. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> that was quite a meal. Uh, Things have changed. Now she's able to cook. She cooks incredible food. In fact, we, we've read in a magazine uh, about three weeks ago about a place that they said they had the best ribs in America. That is a bold claim. We went there, and we ate the, the ribs that they made. Their ribs had nothing on They weren't even in the same category as the ribs that Shanna makes. In fact, they're cooking right now at my house. Slow and low, real nice. You know, the sauce is boss. We put Sweet Baby Ray's on there, so we buy that at the store. But she cooks the, when she cooks the meat, the meat is like butter falling off the bone, okay? It's just like dripping there. You just keep consuming and, and eating it. And let me tell you something. I can preach about, which I'm doing right now, I could preach about her ribs all day long. And you can answer questions about them. If I asked you about them, if someone else asked you what Shannon's cooking, cooking like, you could give the same description I just gave, but you're not passionate about her cooking because you haven't tried it. You know what the scripture says? Taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to experience him for yourself. And that happens when you're willing to be honest and do the hard work and be courageous enough to go to those dark places where you look at stuff, you don't like what you see. And what are you going to do? He's already done it for you. And you don't just tack it up there like, all right, good, it's taken care of. No, you've got to do the work. You've got to go with him. And you've got to be with Jesus Christ where you come face to face with Jesus Christ. And what happens then when you find the one who actually loves you more than you love you and has done something that can never be changed and transformed you, you do fall in love. But you have to experience it for yourself. A real man will admit his failure. We're all failures. What are you going to do about it? Will you follow the Savior of all mankind, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. We are so grateful that you loved us so much that you don't just leave us running around down here trying to figure it out with false images of what manhood looks like, with false images of what womanhood looks like, with all kinds of lies and deception and false saviors, but you sent your son, Jesus Christ, as our savior. I pray for our men, that our men would be men that would become like your son, Jesus Christ, that would reject passivity, they would lead in their homes, they would lead in their families, they would lead um, in this church, they would lead in our community. 
pursuing your son, Jesus Christ, the greater reward. I pray if there are any here that don't know your son, Jesus Christ, that today would be a moment of salvation, that even right now, as I pray, that you call upon the name of the Lord, that you might acknowledge your failure. You might have specific ones you've laid your heart on while I was talking. And it might be that you've been settling for phonies, you've been settling for fakes. You've got false saviors, and you need to trust Jesus Christ to be your savior. The scripture says this, that if you believe that he died for your sins and he rose again, you believe that in your heart, and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that Jesus Christ will save you from your sins. And you can do that right now as you sit there in your seat. And if you do, I would just challenge you to check that on your connection card before you leave. And Father, I pray for those of us who need to repent. It's going to take more than a couple minutes at the end of the service. I pray that you'd put in them a burden, a heaviness, a weight of desire and need to go and spend time in repentance with you and do work with you. And I pray, God, that, that those who are pursuing you, that they've been encouraged today by this message, that we have a vision for what manhood really looks like, and it's your son, Jesus Christ, and we would pursue him. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.